Greetings and welcome to the Upper Pen Podcast. My name is Dakota and today I'm talking with Neil Helligers, actor, narrator, all-around cool dude. I know Neil best as the voice of Montana Cogshall and Clyde Hatchett of Eric Euglin's Good Guys and Bad Guys series. Neil captures the funny and the harrowing. Um, Montana and Clyde are lucky to have such a talented narrator. Neil, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much and I appreciate that. I'm lucky to have them is how I see it. <laughs> It's pretty great because it has Eric has a pretty wide range of emotions in his books. Yeah, it's it's uh, he gets the pathos in there and he gets the humor in there. And I love his his dialogue is just fantastic. Um, and I, you know, I appreciate that he's built a world where it's, you know, it's it's game lit and there's that kind of going on. But there's also an irreverency to that as well, too. And that kind of all the characters and there's a that's a fun, you know, um, you know, when we when, when I get a new book and I, I go to him, I, I know he always has very specific ideas about every single thing in there. But he's also, you know, we'll also sort of arrive at like in um, Wild Wild Quest. We're like, what kind of Western world is this? And to not make it a typical Western world. And he had a lot of ideas and um, was willing to kind of hear some of my input as well, too. And uh, I think we arrive at a good at a good thing together. Yeah. How did you get started narrating? We'll go back to the beginning real quick. <laughs> sure. Um, I uh, I have a, you know, I, I was, you know, been acting for a while in a professional capacity, uh, and that took on a kind of a variety of forms. Um, coming out of uh, college, then grad school, um, I did mostly stage theater, a lot of Shakespeare, um, by and large, and some other, um, like, downtown New York theater as well, too. Uh, and then that kind of morphed, and that was, I was kind of, like, wanting to start a family that was sort of an unsustainable lifestyle for me, and so I um, in terms of being out of town a lot and things like that. So I shifted from that work into doing on-camera work, which was largely the form of uh, commercial work. Um, a lot of Goofy Dad stuff, as you, you said, you saw some of those clips, you know. It was, Modern Family was very popular at the time. So every commercial wanted like the dumb dad and the mom was like, well, here's the product, you idiot. You know, uh, so I did a lot of that kind of work, but even that was kind of, it was good. It was sort of inconsistent and as nature of that work, you never know what your next gig is going to be. And so, um, I decided I wanted to kind of supplement that with uh, uh, with narrating. And I had always listened to audiobooks for years over long drives back to the day of the big, well, actually back to records when I was a kid, but um, to the day of the big binders of cassette tapes and then CDs. Uh, and so I did that thing that, um, you know, uh, people do to narrators, a lot of people have done to me, and I always try to be very generous about this because I, a friend of mine from grad school is a very successful narrator. I said, hey, can I take you out to coffee and pick your brain? Like, you know, I did that, and she was very kind and very generous to to do that. I kind of owe her everything, really, in that respect. And I kind of um, slowly worked my way into it in terms of getting um, uh, coaches and workshops to kind of use the skill set that I had from my acting training and experience to kind of commute that into audiobook work. I did the thing in the closet for a long time in the apartment that I was living in, didn't breathe oxygen for a while, um, made that work, learned the tech, um, slowly tried to always trying to improve, always trying to like get better at my work while also trying to kind of set up um, work that I wanted to do. I always read sci-fi and fantasy, so it made the most sense to kind of work in that realm and then i'm also a gamer so game lit kind of came early on in that respect as well too um also the advantage of you know um, on a practical level game lit is usually series based so you get one book you're getting a handful of books so that seemed like a good way to market myself in kind of a smart move and also again like the kind of books that i i wanted to do so um you know it's it's the game it's the it was building a completely separate list of contacts from what i knew in my other acting work 
uh, and getting to know people. And it's a the audiobook community is is a fantastic, generous community. And it's you know we're in a time seems perpetually knock wood in this sort of period of growth. So there's a lot of available work if you know how to kind of get it. Um, but I just kind of started building the thing and and building more contacts and more um, and just always really always kind of trying to do better. I have this sort of thing where like. If 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 it's the book that I'm currently working on, I feel confident about my work. But if it was like a year ago, I listened to it, I'm like, oh man, I could have done that better. Um, and I, you know, I'd rather be. I have a weird combination of imposter syndrome and um, and confidence into that. But I I feel like I, I use that imposter syndrome to always make sure that I'm never getting complacent and always trying to make my craft better and always trying to do the books the best service possible and um, for the for the listeners and make that experience as good for them as possible. That's a, like that. That seems like a very good response. Um, I don't know where I was going with the beginning of that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> seems, um, seems. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, it's all a lie. It's all a lie. I just made that up entirely. So just, <laughs> I did a lot of improv. No, actually, actually, that's one thing I never did a lot of was a lot of like improv. It's kind of you know someday perhaps you know, but I never did like organized improv, just scenic improv, commercial auditions, and commercial acting actually has a lot of improv in it. But anyway. Um, you do seem very funny in the audiobooks that I've listened to. So I'm surprised that there's not a lot of improv in your background. So. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, I, you know, a lot of things like, uh, what's the thing about, um, uh, what's the phrase exactly? It's like, um, drama is difficult, but comedy is harder, you know? Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is helped by like having a funny book, of course, that's like, I can't do anything without that. And I, you know, maybe I might try to, I always try to milk the humor for everything. Even I think the most serious thing is made better by wrapping it in humor or surrounding it or putting it or contextualizing it in some way with humor. Um, but, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I think again, like those, I mean, you saw it in those clips, like, uh, the, the commercial acting is like, it's often very scant. Like you get on set and they're like, mm -hmm. here's what you want you to do. And you'll do uh, 30 different versions of it until they choose the one thing that they want. And that's the whole day. That's the 32nd spot. Right. But they, they'll spend a whole day on it because the client be like mm, something different. So it was kind of incumbent upon me to come up with multiple different versions of being the, the silly dad or, or or whatever it might be. So, um, you know, um, I, I, I guess that's all a way of saying that I try to be funny. I don't often succeed. I don't always, uh, you know, I, oftentimes I don't succeed. Um, but that's my that's my goal anyway. Yeah. Uh, so you take on a lot of different types of books. Um, so it seems like you have a lot of gamelet, but you also mm -hmm. do nonfiction and mm -hmm. um, contemporary fiction. So mm -hmm. how do you get prepared for these these vastly different books? Um, the way I always kind of look at that, I mean, nonfiction is in a, in a slightly different sense is different from any other all fiction, uh, partially because of the, the, the topicality and the structure of it. it. It doesn't tell a story in the same way. Sometimes it does. Um, but I always think of it in a way I think of like if I'm doing nonfiction, I feel my, I think of myself as playing the character of this author who cared so much about this topic that they wrote a whole play about it. And if it's not necessarily always in first person, um, but that's who I'm kind of playing or that's who I'm inhabiting in that. Um, aside from that, um, you know, there, there's a sort of an adage among uh, narrators and among coaches that um, whoever this person is, whether it's Montana or whatever, you know, they don't know that they're in a gamelet. You know, they don't so and so doesn't know that they're in a mystery or a thriller or something. And so I always kind of try to 
honor whatever I'm whatever that author is giving me. And I try to think of that more than the genre. But a lot of that comes down to the same acting um, uh, process that I do would do for anything else. It's like I, I try to um, have the it be a process of discovery for the main character that I'm inhabiting. You know, even if it's third person, usually third person has some amount of um, uh, informedness to it, you know, and you're in that person's head, even if, even if it's third person. And I let that affect my pacing of delivery for the narration, even if it's third person. Um, I, I always just kind of try to, um, tell the story and then let the book take its own form. You know, I don't have to create the, the, the game litness of it. That's going to kind of take care of itself. Um, that being said, there are some aspects of the genre that people make expectations towards. And I think that, my tendency, you know, for example, um, voice work in game lit, you know, the expectation is it for it to be a little more elaborate, but I kind of, I take that same sensibility to, um, urban fantasy or to contemporary fiction. You know, um, I also kind of like doing voices and I like the notion of, um, those voices being distinct, but I also like the idea of two voices being distinct from each other, not because one is like a high pitched British accent and the other is a gravelly, you know, former Navy SEAL dude, but because their circum their, because it's the scene, it's their circumstances are dictate how they sound. And that's what makes them sound different as much as all those other kind of trappings as well, too. You know, um, you know, I, I feel like if I'm not doing game lit, I feel like I give myself a little more permission to not have to be animation level voice acting. But um, uh, when it's, you know, um, it, when it's good guys and, um, you know, a certain character uh, shows up like like Mr. Paul, like he has to be consistent and he has to have a an acumen to him that sets him apart from everyone else in, in various ways. Um, but then again, it always come no matter I'm making choices based on what the author is giving me. And uh, in that case, uh, Eric gives me so much. Um, in terms of those, those, I mean, Mr. Paul scenes are all, all, they're all dialogue scenes. They're all, you know, and so for that, it's the, it's the back and forth and the, and, and for that, that's pure acting objective work. That is what does Mr. Paul want to get out of uh, Montana or, you know, um, spoiler Claude, um, or, or the other way around, you know, what is, what do they want out of this God or how do they, how do they achieve that? Um, that's the same no matter what. And, um, in a way, nonfiction is that thing, except the listener is the other, is the scene partner. You know, I want to convince someone of, you know, I did a book about um, uh, 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 various assaults on constitutional rights. That author was very concerned and very uh, wanting to impart to the listener, to the reader or whoever it might be, that, um, that this is important, this is vital, this is something that's changing in our society that they need to be aware of. That's the objective. That's the same as whether I was doing Shakespeare, whether I was a dad trying to, you know, sell a product or whether it's Montana, Clyde or, or whomever, so... Um, it all comes back to the same thing. And then it takes on these wonderful forms based on what the author gives me to play with. So uh, a lot of the work that's in Gamelet is um, either a very small publishing house or self-published. Mm -hmm. So I imagine there's a different expectation between somebody like Eric Uglund versus like you did a Joyce Carol Oates book. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very contemporary, very like highbrow literature, right? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think, well, in that particular case, um, you know, for example, uh, Eric's books are are published through Tantor, who is a company that I've worked for. They're one of the first audiobook companies that I've worked for. So I have a long history of working with them. I understand their work process. I know what their sort of expectations are. Um, you know, it, it's very easy with that Joyce Carol Oates book. I feel like 
that's the one that I wish I could go back and redo because I feel like I it's happened to me before when it's like, oh, I really love this book. I really want to make it the best I possibly can. Like I'm far more prone to kind of like um, put too much or to kind of whiff on a book at the same time when I really like this is special. And so the track, the the trap I've tried to get out of is thinking of anything as being um, whether it's uh, no matter what publisher it's from, if it's from a uh, big four, five, three, two, one these days uh, pub or whether it's independent, I'm working directly for the author or whether it's Tantor um, is to try to give them all the same weight. And that's also to say, like, to not be too precious with any of them. I, I've come to find that when I get precious and overwrought. That's when I don't I don't do my best work that way. Not that I have to like pretend to not care or that I don't care or that I'm not invested. But there's there's a difference between being over uh, to putting too much weight into something. And that that ruins it for me that, or, you know, it makes it harder, you know, because I'm and, uh, you know, w weirdly, like I make more um, pickup errors when that's the case, because I'm so absorbed in the in, in something else. That's not the thing that I should be absorbed in, you know. Um, not that pickups is a reflection of the quality, but I, I, I take it as an indication that um, there's something off about it for me, you know, when I get a lot, you know, um, that I'm not as connected to it as I should be, or I'm trying to force it to be something else that it's not. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I, you know, w so while I'm, you know, always working to do more, better books, you know, um, I always try to, no matter what it is, even if it's a book that I'm like, this is not my favorite book, but I'm going to find the thing in here that is the, is the part that I do love and kind of make it about that. And that's going to be true for anything. Um, you know, it, it makes it easier if the book is fantastic. Um, but th that's not often, not always the case. Um, but as my act, that's, you know, it's, it's the same. That's the any actor's job with any gig um, is that you, you take it and you mine it for, for the nuggets that, that appeal to you the most. And you, you make that the thing that you're doing, you know. I get that feeling of like trying too hard on the things that you really, really care about. Cause like with, uh, like you, you're one of my favorite narrators. So now I'm super nervous, but now I, I want to do really good. Right. <laughs> well, you, we're all doing great here, you know, <laughs> So best, I definitely best to not care that. too much about me. Just mistreat me. And then it'll be a, it'll be a fantastic interview. Just ignore you. <laughs> yeah. You know I mean? Pick up that Zadie Smith from behind you and start reading. And then I'll be like, oh, oh that's an interesting choice for an interview. Oh yeah. Let's yeah. just do some I am looking Northwest. at your bookshelf. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. I mean, you're in front of it. So, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. my office is relatively small, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with fantasy and Gamelit in particular, there's a lot of random kind of not real words, right? Um, mm -hmm. So how do you go about deciding how you're going to say Valdrani or uh, whatever it happens to be in that book? I always, I kind of like, there's two, there's two, um, uh, components of that. One is that like, usually I can ask, you know, I can, I, I, if it's, you know, I'm, I'm usually pretty clear, like there's, you know, an ambiguity in pronunciation. Um, sometimes there's really no ambiguity, even if it is a made up word, it's like, it's gotta be, it's pretty much going to be that. Um, but I do always assemble a list as I go along of words that, um, are, that are part of the world. You know, if I don't have, if I don't happen to have access, it's, it's relatively rare that I don't have the ability to ask someone or they'll be like, well, you know, make your best guess. We trust your judgment. I try to create some kind of system by which, you know, um, the names of all the names from a certain culture, for example, 
I try to make it so that there's some kind of cultural continuity with the way those words are pronounced, like emphasis on the first syllable rather than the second or third. Like a lot of languages have that kind of component. Um, but usually I can ask. I mean, to use the current example, um, Eric always knows exactly. Um, there's like one or two times he's like, yeah, I don't know, do your best here, you know, or he'll trust if you know, if I didn't, and I just make a call on something. I never like hear from him about it, but I always send him a list because I know he's got something in his head and I always kind of want to sort of stick with that. He also has a tendency to throw things in to kind of try to mess me up a little bit. Um, so I always kind of make sure to be like, um, what is this, sir? You know, um, uh, but but it's usually and then and then after that, it's really it's really more about being consistent. Whatever choice I make, it just has to be the same. And, you know, I'm not I've not always been fantastic about that, but in my bank of characters, I take a little clip of each character so I can keep their voice consistent. If it's a, if it's some key word that I know I'm going to have to come back to, I'll try to take a, a clipping of that as well, too, just so I have it as as a reference, you know. Um, the book that I'm working on now, um, the author has uh, submitted a pretty great extensive list of of all the names and pronunciations. And so I have him saying them in MP3 so I can refer to them if I need to as well, too. So he, he saved me that work of making my own clip, I guess. But, you know, authors usually do. They usually have an idea in their head about what their made up, you know, uh, beasts and names and cities sound like. That makes a lot of sense. Um, mm -hmm. With the voice clips that you do, I've always wondered how you keep track of uh, certain voices because some of these series are, are many, many, many books. And yeah. you might see a character in book three that doesn't come back up until book 12. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I always try to be like, you know, I mean, on one hand, like I try to keep a pretty consistent library of names for of, of voices for, you know, for each series and that kind of that file kind of it's a, it's a folder that I keep alongside the other ones and they're all so small wave files and that can kind of grow and grow. Um, usually if I, you know, if, if someone comes up and then goes away again, um, I'll have given them a unique voice. You know, it, it is also possible for me to, it takes a little more time and I'll have the other, the previous uh, text from the previous books to find that name and then seek it out in the, in my old files. You know, the only time that's a difficulty and this doesn't happen as much anymore because people aren't recording in studios is if it's, you know, the first book in a series was in studio um, and then the other one, and then the latter ones aren't, you know. It's happened to me where I did the first book of a series and then the second one was in studio. And so I had to be sure to be armed with as many voices as possible from the first one uh, dropped as uh, sound files into my PDF, into my script. So I could be like, that's what he sounded like, because I won't have the luxury of going back through my files, which would be at home. Um, but yeah, that's uh, I've gotten better at that as time's gone on. Like, I look at some older series. And I'm like, ooh, I didn't really uh, like recently I've been. Uh, uh, working on a series called Reality Benders, um, Michael Adamanoff, and it's a um, from uh, Magic Dome, and uh, it crosses over with um, Reality Benders later. It was like so happens slowly. I'm like that name sounds familiar. Oh, I see what's happening here. It crosses over with another series called Perimeter Defense, which was one of the first Gamelet series that I worked on seven years ago, and so I went back to the. I I, I save everything. I never. I never. I always compress and save everything on old hard drives and so i pulled that one out and listened to it and pulled out i'm like oh i didn't um i didn't take many uh clippings here but i still had all the files so the people i didn't have and it was only a few main characters so it wasn't that many i was able to dig and kind of find out and cringe listening to my seven-year-old narration and be like oh um but it was very gratifying it was very very gratifying to go back to my first game lit and kind of cross it over with the the my, my, my most current game lit as well too so that was, it was actually like immensely satisfying. So um, worth the time to dig out some of the other characters for that reason.
it seems like you put a lot of time and effort into each book that you do. Um, but then there's people like Travis Baldry who mentioned that he he doesn't have the time to do that. So do you think that your narration is better for giving it the kind of care that you do? I don't, I don't, I mean, as I understand it, we have pretty similar schedules in terms of like book oh. a week kind of a thing, you know. Um, yeah. uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't know if, uh, I mean, what my process is my process because that's what's worked for me and what other people do is kind of what, what works for them. But, um, um, you know, I, 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 I'm like I said, I, I kind of, I wish I had more time. I, I oftentimes don't, that's kind of the pro you know, um, or I construct my schedule such that if, if, if something happens like a day of illness or something, it throws me for weeks, but I, unless it's a longer book, in which case I will straddle it over two or three weeks if it's, you know, you know, I usually average about 12 to 15 hours a week, or I can do 12 to 15 finished hours a week, but that's the schedule I give myself. That's how I'm like maximizing my output by packing things in as kind of tightly as possible. It's not great and uh, it's going to kill me. Um, but, uh, you know, I, uh, I, yeah, I think my, my deliberation and process is what I require and other people have other processes and, you know, um, uh, but I, I just, I, I do try to keep busy and that's kind of why I, that's, I mean, I, like I say, I do to myself, but I specifically got involved in this work because I wanted to try to develop a working career where I was, I was packed, you know, where I have that consistency of schedule and I have bookings, uh, consistently, you know, uh, into the future that gives me a reliability and uh, a pattern that I can, a budget, like a household budget, you know, for all the full, like the family things that I can rely upon and, um, and, uh, try to, you know, make the most of it. But I also, I, I put limits on that. Like I don't usually record at night unless I'm in a crunch, unless I have to, I try to keep it into daytime recordings. And I also try not to record on weekends. I'll read and prep books at nighttime for like my next book is usually that's the way it works. I, I'll read it, the book at night that I'm recording the following week or the week after that. And for a few hours on the weekend, but I also try to take at least a day to not do that. That's how I actually probably keep myself from dying um, in order to do that. So, but, uh, um, like I, I, I work hard, but I, I put limits on it and, um, I, I try to, I have to, I mean, I, I recognize that it won't work if I burn myself out or if I destroy my voice or something like that. So I always try to maintain my, my, um, my health and my, my regimens and hydration and all that kind of stuff. So that it I don't. It seems like you guys do so much work and, uh, it feels like people don't realize maybe how much work goes into being a narrator. Um, so... <laughs> It's labor intensive, you know, of all the voice art, voice artist work. It's certainly, I think it's the marathon We're the marathoners, you know, um, uh, not just because we get paid less than a commercial voiceover <laughs> or a SAG actor. Um, but, but, um, you know, we, we all, we all work really hard. And I think that's kind of what our community is really strong because we all recognize that in each other, you know, um, and it's like game recognizes game, you know, um, and I see that in Travis, I see that in a lot of great narrators, um, they're all, we're all working really hard and, uh, we're all trying. And, and, um, again, right now it's at the place where like, I think this is particularly in Gamelit, like the better all of the Gamelit narrators are, the better the genre is, the better the listening pool is, the better the whole experience becomes. And so, um, we're really good. I think it kind of, celebrating each other and you know it's like we're all so busy like there's not it's 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 absent the the some kind of competition in that sense um but it's um we all the the, the we all support each other to lift each other up to lift ourselves up to um lift the authors up to lift the community up as well too um 
and 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 I think and and GameLit it kind of it you know it's true for that's true for a lot of the industry um, of the audiobook industry and a lot of narrators as well too. Um, GameLit is is kind of like it's actually not dissimilar in some respects from um, romance. The romance narrators have a similar kind of thing going where they um, have all worked together because there's so much duet and and multicast collaborations happening in romance that they all work with each other in various ways, but they all support each other. And in general, narrators have gotten better about um, sub- advocating for each other and ourselves. Um, uh, uh, and that shows itself up in, in, in groups. It shows itself up with, um, with, with Panna, uh, professional author narrator, professional audiobook narrators association um and uh that is uh you know all these organizations that we're trying to create for ourselves that structure trying to create for ourselves to help each other to advocate for better standards in terms of pay in terms of structure and expectations and our relationship with the publishers um with it and and um and with listeners um and with the unions and all that as well too so um we're we're all working hard to work harder, <laughs> um, but but we're trying to do it in a way that's smarter and better and and more productive and supportive. It seems like you have to wear a lot of different hats when you're a narrator too, because um, you've worked for a bunch of different companies, and I don't know mm-hmm. if you're contracted with anyone specifically right now. Um, Not in a retainer kind of a way, yeah. you know. Um, I mean the the. the very few, I mean, I think Podium is the only one that has that kind of arrangement happening with with the, with their um, uh, contributors. Um, most everyone else, it's all um, you become a independent contractor for, you know, we're all independent. We're all small businesses, essentially, you know. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I just th- that's been always, the name of the game has always been about like always trying to um, for me, trying to work with a different publisher whenever I can, you know, in order to expand that pool of potential um, opportunities and and books and things like that too. So the different, yeah, you, you're definitely right. A narrator needs to be aside from just the narrating work itself, which is divided into a few hats between narrator and director. Um, you have to be on top of your tech. That's another hat. You have to be on top of your um, promote your own promotion. That's another hat. You're um, you have to be uh, you know a, a participant in the community. That's another hat. If you do coaching or other kind of stuff, that's another hat as well too. Um, you know, it's, it's all the different things that go into a a business, um, when you're the sole employee and, and, and secretary and, you know, janitorial staff. So let's say you're, you do everything, you know, everything. Um, uh, but, and and that's true for, for acting in general, you know, um, um, it, though it's potentially, you mean the idea of repertory companies has kind of gone away from this country, but, um, unless you're contracted for a series or something like that for a number of episodes, um, you know, which is sort of the case. I mean, like I mentioned the series before, like when you're signing on to one, you're kind of signing on to all of them, um, ideally. But um, uh, it's still like, you know, I still view it as kind of like um, I'm working from book to book to book. Like this is the book that I'm doing now. Then I'm going to shift focus to the next one and to the next one and just kind of try to keep it going until I die. (laughs) Don't die. (laughs) No, I'm trying not to. Desperately trying not to. Um, so one of the things, one of the hats that you seem to wear is producer too. So not only are you directing your own work, but you have to produce it too. With, um, I mean, it depends. It's different with, um, that that more happens with, um, if I'm doing, uh, working with, uh, an author or, you know, it's some kind of indie book of some kind. Um, 
not always the case. Sometimes it's, you know, I'm making direct contact with an author. And so uh, I'm the one bringing the book to, uh, I'm recording the book. I'm communicating with the author about wh what they need, but then I'm also, um, uh, I'm the one who's contacting the engineer and, uh, and, and uh, who will proof and do all that kind of work. And I'm the, the channel between those. Um, sometimes even in an independent way, um, like if I'm working on the uh, um, uh, Michael Chapman's uh, Ten Realms books, um, uh, sorry, uh, um, if I'm working with Don Chapman, who's the the engineer producer for the for the Ten Realms books, um, that's who I'm I'm kind of working with as well. It's so that like that changes the nature of what I do because I'm working with Don to do Mike's books. Um, but I'm also, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm wearing another number of other hats, but I'm not doing the, I, I'm just sh shipping things to her and she's getting the pickups back to me. So. That's going to be nice. Not having to worry about that part at least. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I mean, and it's also, uh, the thing is like, as a, as an actor, that's, this is kind of the weird thing. Like, um, as an actor, I like collaborating with people. I, I'm, you know, I, I kind of come out of a background where, you know, working in Shakespeare is all about the company. It's all about working and relying on other actors. I mean, it happens when I work on um, multicasts and sort of here and there kind of randomly in the opportunity to, or, or a duet or something like that. Um, but generally speaking, um, I, I don't have that collaborative um, experience, but like uh, to use the same example um, with, if, if it's, if I'm, working on a 10 realms book um i can i can talk to don about this moment here or this moment there so i can have those kind of moments of collaboration uh and then we can go back to mr chatfield and be like what do you think of this and he'll say he'll sign off on certain things and so that's a form of collaboration but that's that's you know for independence that's doesn't happen as much you know um with some smaller presses it can kind of um it can be that way but we're kind of expected to be autonomous by and large narrators um it happened that the grad school that I went to, Trinity Rep, which is in Providence, um, one of the things that my teachers there talked a lot about was being um, not relying upon a director um, to, in order to do the work about making choices and be and and um, self-generating a lot of the work. And and if you get to work with the director and then they can give you good input, that's wonderful. But you don't you shouldn't wait for that. In, uh, you know, before making choices about stuff. And so that um, perspective works, happens to work, I think, really well for audiobooks, where uh, I'm very rarely working with a director. And even then, it's not the kind of direction that's like scenic direction, where, the, I mean, there might be suggestions happening if it's if it's just dialogue multicast, it can be, they can be more on, t uh, on, on kind of moment to moment with you. But um, I have to generate all that kind of work myself. And so it's it's a it's it's a comfortable place because of that training. And of course, it's just sort of what you get used to. But by and large, even when I'm working with Don or Michael or whomever, most of the work is still me by myself, you know, um, I get, unless I'm live recording, which is a whole weird other thing. But, you know, um, in which case you're being looked at by looked at by people. But that also feels like that's that's like a third other thing. Live recording versus recording by myself. You know, I've been doing forays into it. I don't love live recording. I don't I don't dislike it. And I think it has a, a strong there's a strong value to it. And I, I enjoy doing it sometimes. It's just that it feels like a different exercise to me. If I know that I'm being watched, um, I know that um, it's like I feel like a, a different set of muscles automatically get engaged with me when I know I have an audience. And um, 
I'm not saying the work is better or worse. It just feels different. And so I just kind of note that difference. I'm like, all right, well, if I don't, if I want a, a different insularity, then I won't do a live. But if I want a little bit of kind of, you know, um, uh, different energy to it, then maybe I'll, I'll try it for certain parts of it or, you know, or, you know, coming back from lunch or something, but, you know, um, <laughs> um, actually more like first, for more like in the morning, I'll be, I'll be more inclined to do a live, like when I, when I get into the booth first, when I'm fresh rather than later in the day. But yeah. Do you miss working with people though? I mean, it's gotta oh, be yeah. such a dramatic change when no you first intended. started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, and I always keep saying, I was talking to a friend about this this weekend. I've kind of, I've stopped doing theater by and large. Of course, like the past couple of years have not been a great time to be doing theater um, at all. But, um, and so I consider myself and the choices that ended up being made very fortunate that I, we, you know, for the true for all narrators, of course, that we had these COVID jobs when the rest of the industry really did shut down. Uh, and so I wouldn't change anything for that. I have no regrets in that respect. Uh, but that maybe I'll get back to doing theater someday. I would love to. I'd love to do Shakespeare play again. You know, it's been a long time since I've had to <laughs> memorize that many lines. But um, yeah, I, I do because I always feel like the collaborative experience is always like, it's not that you're, anyone in, is not able to be as, much of an artistic individual it's that the, the the sum is greater than its parts kind of a thing working collaboratively with great artists um challenges you and expands the possibilities and provides uh choices that you would never have the opportunity to make if you were doing both sides of the dialogue by yourself you know um I, I do miss it and I do hope to get back to it at some point. And whenever I do get to do a multicast, it's sort of like, you know, we, we all have these theater backgrounds. And so we all have the same kind of like, oh my gosh, we get to act with other people, you know, um, even if it's, um, you know, uh, via like this, you know, that, as the form it usually takes. Right before the last book I did before shutdown was a multicast at Audible. And uh, it was ridiculous, too. We also got there. You know, we all came off the subways from New York City where we know now it's like COVID was like swirling all over the place. And we get to the studio. We're like, oh, we have hand sanitizer. We're fine. And like, meanwhile, we're like talking in this, you know, um, large but still enclosed studio with with, you know, with, with all these other people. And thankfully, everyone was fine. But um, we got about halfway through that multicast. And then they're like, we're shutting down the studios for two weeks. So we're like, oh, OK. Um, but then years later, of course. So I always think of that in terms of like the last you know, the last book of the before was this wonderful multicast in this beautiful studio with a great group of people uh, and a great project. And then it all came tumbling down. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, there'll be more multicasts. I, I do hope to get back on stage at some point. Um, and of course there's also film projects, which is a, a very much akin to the same kind of collaborative energy that can happen. It, not quite the same, like my art will always be in kind of in, in theater production and stage acting and, 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 um, whether it's, whether it's Shakespeare or something more contemporary or experimental. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I, I do miss it. And I try to like, if I'm alone here in the booth, I try to capture that sense when there's the dialogue by, you know, getting, trying to surprise myself, you know, and trying to be open to impulses as they occur to me, um, as they arrive from the book. I, I'm, I'm collaborating with the book. I'm collaborating with the author, even if they're not in the booth with me, which would be um, uh, tight. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I really like the way Jeff Hayes does his sound booth stuff where there's like mm -hmm. a, a variety of people on his casts. I think sure. it's really interesting for like a radio play type audiobook. Um, yeah. So would you ever yeah, do it, something it, like that? 
I mean, I have done. I've done, you know. Um, oh, yeah, you did not, multi. Not, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's it's funny, too. It's sort of like, um, uh, you know, uh, the NATF, the National Audio Theater Festival um, is this, you know, uh, it's connected with the festival and the Here Now Festival in Kansas City. I mean, it's been virtual for the past couple of years, but I worked with them a bunch in past years as well, too. Usually bringing in weird experimental Shakespeare projects um, was been kind of like my contribution to that festival. Um but also what's great about attending that festival is that that's tied into the decades old radio play tradition. So it, to them, it's kind of fun. And then that, that festival has been existing for a long time. At some point they started bringing more and more audiobook because audiobook had this huge ascendancy. And to them, it's hilarious that everyone's like, Oh, we're discovering this like multicast full production. And they're like, yeah, we, we've been doing it for decades. Literally we've been doing it for a hundred years, you know, like we've been doing it forever. Um, and they're like, yeah, so, you know, and, and, uh, but and and so they that that's a great organization of all these people who have been or connected to those that that tradition of doing it and uh, and 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 um you know Jeff is from Kansas City he's on the board for NATF or from for for that as well or has been I'm not sure if he still is but um so that tradition is very much connected um to uh to that whole that whole experience um and uh you know there was a whole kerfuffle recently where um i don't need to get into the names of it but a audiobook entity put out a tech a, a tweet saying you know people are trending towards multicast what will it be like if it replaces the single narrator and it was upsetting in a way too and un, maybe unfounded and whatever the tweet was taken down um but again that same kind of thing about like um, I mean, it's like saying that's trending is like saying that, like, people are using the phone to talk to each other, you know, like, yeah, it's been happening for a long time, dude, you know, um, and, and whether it's, it's never, it's not a trend if it's always been there and it's always been happening and, 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 uh, in all these different pockets, uh, you know, not necessarily right in the sort of, um, enclave of the industry, you know, where, where trends occur or trends don't occur, you know, um, but multicast are lots of fun because it has that kind of collaboration to it. So um, it's definitely the the more of those I can do, the better. Um, and it's a good sort of it does certainly kind of break up the monotony of just me in the book in the room. So in the booth. So I imagine it's got to be kind of a hard decision, though, because uh, you can't take 100 percent of your profits or whatever, like you would normally do by yourself because um, it's a whole cast. Right. Yeah, the, the the different companies do different things with that. You know, um, uh, Audible, if it's a multicast, you get um, paid by the they have everyone sort of present online together and you get paid like a studio fee, like a, like a by hour. And for if you're scheduled from one to three, you get that times three um, other places, um, wh whatever you contribute audio wise. Maybe there's a minimum of a fin one finished hour, um, but then um you get paid for how much for long your accumulated audio is for just your lines in a in a multicast if you're just reading lines of dialogue and maybe some some chapters um it, it's uh it's a concern and it's a question because there are so many different standards um something that um uh, pana and other organizations or, or other narrators are trying to work for is establishing something consistent um the, the the problem also is that even if it's a sag contract sag contracts are negotiated individually with all these different companies so they're not there's no obligation to have a single model like um one model that's been floated because even if it's a multicast i still have to read the whole book you know, I don't just go through read my lines. You need to know what's happening in the entire story. You need to know how it ends, even if you're not there. Um, and that's as so you're basically doing the same preparation as you were for a full book, but then getting paid a percentage of that 
um, which it's essentially like it's essentially like taking a massive pay cut um, for the same amount of work. You know, um, some uh, uh, companies that I work for will add in aside from whatever um, money, whatever the, the sort of my final running time is and getting paid by by finished hour for that. They'll put in another finished hour on top of that for prep, you know, um, so there's efforts now to kind of that that's been sort of haphazard um, to try to seek out what that best standard is and try to advocate for that being uh, applicable to everyone, um, uh, whatever that best model is. I don't claim to know personally what it is, um, but that's what we're, we're trying to kind of figure that out and try to make that consistent. So it's not like it's fun to do it, but well, well, like if I was not doing this, I'd be making more money, which is always true for the same amount of time. Um, it, it, that's a shame that that would have to be that case. And it would be great to equalize those things, not so that the full books make less, but so that, everyone can kind of make that full do um, without anyone being compromised in any way. Yeah. Okay. I guess that kind of goes back to like how you've been an actor and a bunch of different things. It must be very mm -hmm. similar to that, that model, I would assume. Well, I mean, uh, if I was, uh, when I was like doing Shakespeare, for example, I would make my uh, actor's equity weekly pay basically. And that varies depending on what scale of theater you're working at, the size of the theater, where it's located, if it's a tour, if it's in the city, um, if it's uh, in a regional city. Um, and that, in that case, you make not much, but you make what you make per the week, you know, um, audiobook, because it's this whole, you know, generally speaking, this finished hour, um, it incentivizes, um, the narrator to um, streamline their processes otherwise so that the total ratio of working hours, including prep and recording to finished hours is, is kind of as tight as possible. Um, and that happens naturally. Like if it's, you know, for, for Eric's books or for other books in a series that I'm familiar with the language, I can get my recording ratio pretty tight. You know, my average is about two to one, two hours of working for one hour of finished. Um, if I really know the language and I'm really on a flow, I can get that down to um, 1.5 to one. But that, I, I don't pressure myself to do that. I don't, I'm not obliged to do that. I don't want it to be over two to one. And then that's, but that's also not taking into consideration um, prep time, which is its whole kind of, which adds to that as well too. Um, but that's why I kind of schedule my books as tightly as I can. That's how I'm again, maximizing my work output, um, by being as kind of tight and efficient as possible. And, um, while also scheduling myself to like, as mentioned, not kill myself. Um, but also while I'm, while I'm scheduling out, I try to leave a hold weeks because different publishers will, you know, like from independent books, those are the ones that I've scheduled like into next year um, for books from other publishers like New York publishers, big four, three, two, one book uh, publishers. Um, they tend to get in touch far sooner, um, um, but everyone's sooner if, you know, so I have to make sure to leave kind of holes in my schedule that that can be I can either spread a book out and not have to do three hours a day of a book and I can be comfortable doing two for two weeks. Um, but then I leave that opportunity for something else to come in. So there's a lot of that kind of um, that, there, that's a hat, you know, it's a, that scheduling hat um, is different from the kind of relatively luxurious. Like I, you know, show up for two weeks of rehearsal, three weeks of rehearsal, then we open and then I got my days free <laughs> and I do the show every night and it's wonder. And then I go, then we go to the bar, you know, <laughs> um, uh, that was, that was the life. But um, in this case, this is, this is the support and the structure that I, I want out of my career. And so it's worthwhile to me to kind of do that, um, do that sort of like um, the, the, 
intricate dance of fitting all the books together and, and doing it so that I can get everything done um, while giving enough time without crushing things into a schedule, without compressing it too much and doing that book a disservice, um, while also getting to as many books as I can. I want to get to these books, you know, um, like right now I'm trying to figure out how to schedule in a, a good guys because I get them when Eric gets them to Tantor and then I got to figure that out and, and, uh, um, and I leave blocks for them because I'd communicate with, with authors in advance, like, Hey, when's this coming out? When's this coming out? And, and leave gaps in my schedule that I know that one is coming around so that it doesn't have to be done in, um, you know, 23 or whatever. So. Okay. Mm. Huh? So I never, I didn't really think about the scheduling because it must be really difficult with books not being written yet, but you know you're yeah. going to have like a good guys and maybe a bad guys and then like. <laughs> right. And I can generally know how, generally know how long those uh, books are going to be. Or once I talk to the author about it, they have a sense of how long it's going to be. And um, even if it's you know, if it's the difference between 10 hours and 12 hours and 15 hours, it's all something that I can probably do in a week with, with again, without dying. Um, it's only when it pushes up into the 20 hour range or something like that, that I know like, okay, I need a couple of weeks for this. And, and, and that's not even including prep, which take, takes a long time. Um, and if that's the case, I need to know that and well enough advance in order to leave that hole, you know? Um, but also that, uh, uh, you know, books are within a series are usually pretty consistent or the or the uh, author has an idea like Michael Chatfield for the Ten Realms books knew how long, generally speaking, his book 10 was going is going to be was going to be um, so that even if we were scheduling that months in advance, I knew how much time to leave for it. You know, um, some authors have their have their stuff together like that in that respect. So. OK, I guess that makes it a little bit easier, but then you are also <laughs> taking on new projects, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I leave some holes for that as well, too. Or if something comes in, I'm like, yeah, I can, you know, like my first wave of scheduling is usually very broad. And then that second wave, I'm like, I can, this book will realistically take me four days of recording. So this book will take four days, but the one after that will take four days, but I gave myself a week and a half. So I'm going to layer that in between there so that I can fit that one in in between, you know, and, um, and get them all kind of done. Um, but if that one other doesn't come in, then it, it, it does open up my schedule more to do to, um, but usually things later in and usually, you know, I, I, I just try not to get into trouble in terms of over scheduling myself and, and sometimes, uh, often fail at that. Um, but like I said, it all gets done. So, uh, can you tell us what new series you're working on? Or? Um, it's sort of new. It's it's the third book of it, but it's kind of all come together pretty quickly. It's um, the one I'm working on today uh, uh, is uh, called it's, it's a series by uh, a Kamikaze Potato is the name of the author. Yeah. Railroad guy. You know, he's like in that vein. Right. Um, uh, it's the third book of a series. It's called Outcast uh, in Another World. Um, it's a game lit. Um, this one's called Rising Insanity. Uh, I really I mean, I really love this series, actually. It's really it's a. Uh, you know, in this typical vein of things, they all have this kind of basic format. In this case, it's a human um, gets brought into this fantasy world uh, where he quickly learns that he's the only human there. There are elves, there are dwarves, there are all sorts of other um, cultures of creatures and, and, and races and things um, because there was a war and the humans all got wiped out. So that's awkward. Um, but he but it has a really um I won't, I'm going to just kind of spoil things, but the way the story develops and the voice of the, you know, the, the, of the, of the 
Well, really of everyone is is really kind of unique. Um, I always think that it's, you know, it's one of the great things about Game Lit is that there is a rough similarity to a lot of the basic storylines of these things, but it's all about what they do from there. You know, it's all about, and, and then it's all about the, the the format of the characters and and how they interact and how they talk with each other and how the story develops um so i'm i'm i'm, I'm very much enjoying this one and it's it's uh it came in a little longer than the publisher the, this is a podium book uh, anticipated so i'm like okay it's 100k more okay all right we'll we'll uh we'll we'll, we'll make that work and then but that automatically my, my next book is a is a uh, is a 10 realms book. So I'm like looking ahead at that and being like, okay, realistically, how many words is that? That's going to take me this long. So, um, that is what happens. Like, and these are wonderful problems to have, like, Oh, the book is a whole book longer <laughs> inside the book. Um, Oh, you know, it, but it's kind of like, well, he needed that room to tell the story. And it's, and, and there's a, there is, it's, it's a long, you know, it might end up being like 25, 26 hours, I think is what I calculated it being today. Um, but it's not wasted. It's, there's no fluff in there. It's all, it's all driven. And, um, uh, and I just, you know, and th there is like, um, you know, I made a choice for the elves in this because I was kind of, you know, I, they all, everyone has all the different cultures have their different language. And, um, I, and I, I, you know, I, this is the third book of the series and I, I, with the elves for this, I gave them something like a touch of, um, it's almost like Scandinavian, or it's components from a Scandinavian accent. Elves are always British. Right. And so I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. You know? Um, and it wasn't supported by the writing of it. Um, uh, that, um, it's like all of the, uh, toned S's like the, like is, is all, is, is, uh, is, um, is unvoiced or is becomes. So if he, someone says, where is he going? It's where is he going? You know? Um, so that, that's a feature of Scandinavian accents or all, and actually at the same time, all V, which is the voice becomes the unvoiced, which is F. So it's, uh, even instead of even things like that. Um, and so the, all, there's a bunch of different dwarf characters and they all have their different character voices based on who they are. Um, but there's also that, but, and that's most, it's this guy, Rob, who's a human he's like a base, you know, normal general, general American dialect or whatever you want to call it. Um, but most of the people he interacts with are these elves. So I, I'm tr trying to keep consistent about, and, and then there's the dragon kin and, you know, they have this kind of a Slavic, um, a Czech thing going on was what I did. Not a Russian, but Czech. Um, and, uh, there's a whole, I don't, again, this is sort of spoilery. Like then there's whole, a whole group that by just turns out for actual reasons, speak Spanish. So they all have Spanish accents, but I, I I'm still, I haven't gotten to it yet. And so I'm, I don't think, I think doing a Catalan would be too, like too much. And so I think I'll probably just keep it to, um, a Spanish, not, not uh, Hispanic, but Spanish accent. Um, so it's, I, that's kind of how I keep myself entertained, but that's also how I make sure I'm delineating between all these different groupings of cultures and things like that too. But, uh, it, it's worth it because, um, because these books are so dang good. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do them. You know, it makes the work, it makes the work a lot lighter to, to, to be able to really invest in it in that way. Are you sure you don't have a degree in linguistics? <laughs> No, I don't. Um, I, I do. I mean, I have a minor in psychology, but and that has a linguistics component to it. But this was one one of my uh, when I went to grad school for acting, uh, my voice teacher, um, you know, we, we would aside from like vocal support and things like that, which is all a great boon to my, you know, ma maintaining my voice and uh, vocal quality. Um, he was really good at 
teaching us not just how to do certain like back pocket accents that you can kind of pull out, but how to learn a new accent when necessary about what to break down and what, like how to identify the components, um, the sound changes, the rhythm changes, the pacing changes, and then apply them uh, with varying degrees of um, uh, of investment, I guess you'd say. Like, you know, uh, you know, like for Scottish accent, if you did a full on Scottish accent, most people couldn't understand what you were saying. You know, there's there's a scene in um, Henry V called it's usually called to the Four Nations scene, and it's a Welshman, a Scots, an Irishman, and an Englishman, and, they, and they're all talking with each other. And um, and the and, and the Welshman is very Welsh for the period. The and the same thing for an else, but the the Scots is like ah, it's a full far fan. You know, it's like he's barely intelligible. Um, and so every so often I'll, you know, put that kind of into it. But, uh, um, so I'm grateful to have had that background and training so that I can, it helps most often it's like, um, you know, in thrillers and things like that, who are urban fantasy, it's not that I'm creating an accent for a, a fantasy race. It's, oh, they're Nigerian. I'm like, okay, what is that? What, what, how do I, how do I discern what that is? And how do I, how is it different from Haitian? Like they, they share a lot of components, um, linguistically, um, uh, and there are, or there are combinations of different accents and everyone's accent is kind of, you know, unique to their generation as well, too. That's a kind of, it's a, a thing. So, um, but I, that's something I geek out about these things. And so it's a pleasure for me to be like, Ooh, what's that feature, you know, or how am I going to do that there? Or, or what's, what's an arcade, what's an, like an older dead accent I could possibly use, you know, cause th that's a whole other category of possibilities. So. Yeah. Well, that's that's very intense. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Neil, for joining us and giving me the full narrating lessons. Of... Sure. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about all this stuff. <laughs> uh, if you haven't got one of Neil's audiobooks, I suggest The Good Guys or The Bad Guys by Eric Euglin. They're a really good entry into Gamelit. Um, be sure to check them out. And as always, thanks for watching and have a great day.